Welcome to Ventricles, a podcast of the science, religion, and culture program at Harvard Divinity School. My name is Shireen Hamza. This episode is part of a series about time, including timekeeping and time travel. In today's episode, I sit down with Shikahisa Kuriyama, a professor of the history of science at Harvard, to speak about time in the body, namely through the pulse. The pulse is used as a diagnostic tool in many different medical traditions, including both Greek and Chinese medicine. In both of these traditions, the practice goes back over 2,000 years. Let's start with a story about a Roman doctor who lived in the 2nd century BC. There was a doctor named Erasistratus, and this is the, the, the feat for which he was best known where there's a prince, Antiochus, who seems to be languishing and, and nobody can figure out what's wrong with him. And by feeling the pulse, the doctor diagnoses the fact that the prince is in love with his stepmother. That's Professor Kuriyama. Erisistratus knew that Antiochus was in love with his stepmother, Stratonice, because whenever she came near him, he noticed that Antiochus's pulse quickened. But don't worry, this story has a happy ending. It's a story that's repeated in many, many versions. If you look at the history of painting, there are many versions of the painting, suggesting that this was a very important story in the imagination. There are many ways of categorizing the feel of the pulse in Greek medicine. The famous physician, Galen, who lived in the second century AD, describes a gazelling pulse, a hectic pulse, an anting pulse, a double beat pulse, even a worming pulse. Many medical practitioners today focus more on quantitatively understanding the heart rate. But to my surprise, some descriptive identifications of the pulse are still a part of the training of biomedical physicians. Here's Melanie Baskind, a recent graduate of Harvard Medical School. We learned about the pulse as part of, I believe it was probably our second year when we were learning different parts of the physical exam. I'm guessing we learned about it in the cardiovascular unit, so the same time that we were learning how to auscultate, listen to the different heart sounds. And uh, what is the pulse exactly? What is the pulse? This is not a formal definition. I guess the way I think about the pulse is it's it's the feeling of that you can perceive as an other person um, of someone's heartbeat. And how do you use it as a doctor? We use it really as a function of how someone's heart is functioning. So there's a couple different things you think about. One is certainly the rate, how fast it's going. So if it's going faster than, say, 100, it could be called tachycardia, which is a fancy way of saying the heart's beating fast. Mm-hmm. Or bradycardia is a fancy way of saying that it's going too slow. And then you think about why that might be the case. Um, it can also, the strength of it. So if it's feeling like it's a bounding pulse, it's you're putting a little bit of pressure, say this is a radial pulse you're taking, Um, and it just feels stronger to you, it's a measure that the heart might be squeezing or contracting more than at baseline. And then again, you might think, well, why might that be the case? Um, On the flip side of that, sometimes the pulse can be described as thready, so the opposite of of a strong pulse, but something that you're not perceiving that well, and that's an indication that the heart might not be working as you might like it to be. So you're using both quantitative and qualitative measures here. Yeah, yeah. I actually didn't know that. Yeah. That uh, biomedical students today still learn um, the qualitative fuel of the pulse. I would say there's probably a little bit more theory here. Um, 
for example, if you're taking a standardized test in medical school, it would be very common for them to describe it in both quantitative and qualitative ways. And so mm. I know the language to use. I know if you're describing a thready pulse, what you're trying to get at. But then when the actual patient is there, I'm not sure that I would be able to perceive if something was thready or mm-hmm. if it was actually normal. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's a little bit of a disconnect in, in how you talk about it, how you learn about it, and what's actually done in the hospital. So do you think people are more proficient at measuring the rate than... Definitely. That? Okay. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can see it even training in medical school. I think there's a big difference in the way that older generations of doctors teach the physical exam. And there's mm-hmm. definitely a sense that our generation is losing our ability to really understand what's going on from our physical exam because we have so many technological tools that are able to provide us information. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, the fact that I see that in the hospital, just working with some older attendings, attendings being just like kind of your boss doctor mm-hmm. um, who are done with their training. Mm-hmm. Um, I see that. And so, yeah, to then think about hundreds and hundreds of years in between how much has changed. Yeah. It's uh, it's very real. Yeah. Where did pulse as a diagnostic tool in Greek medicine come from? And how was it used at the time of its origin? Here's Professor Kuriyama again. So the key thing about pulse diagnosis was in the Western tradition was its opposition to the idea of muscles. So muscles emerged as those parts of the body that could be controlled by the will, and the pulse emerged as those things that couldn't, as the expression of those things that couldn't be controlled by the will. So both pulse diagnosis and the idea of muscularity were expressions or two sides of the same coin in which you have the development of the idea that human beings have something called the will, uh, which is to say they have the capacity of introducing time out of nothingness, right? That they can introduce an action that didn't exist before, that's totally independent, and that's separate from the natural flow of, say, the seasons. Time out of nothing. Time unconnected from the temporality of the world. Day and night, summer and winter. Will, volition, is an act in time. And the muscle was considered the organ of that will in Greek medicine. One of the interesting things about Greek medicine is that if you go back to the time of Hippocrates, the so-called father of Western medicine, from the most important name in the history of Greek medicine, there really isn't anything like pulse diagnosis. By the time you get to Galen, there's a very well-developed pulse uh, system. And that's like 600 years, right, in between them. Exactly. And it's clear that Galen didn't invent it. We know that uh, Alexandrian physicians like Aristotelus and Herophilus were important uh, in that development. But, but what we know mostly of, of their theories is through the works of Galen. And one wonders, how did pulse diagnosis arise in the first place? How did it, anybody get the idea that you could feel the pulse and learn something about a person? And... I think the basic reason lies in the emergence, actually, of the idea of muscles. That it's when the idea of muscles as the organs of voluntary motion emerge, that the idea of volition emerges, that the contrast, namely the involuntary or the natural, is brought out in relief. Right, And it's when that clear opposition between the voluntary and involuntary become important that both muscles and the pulse become important. So it's in that context that 
uh, the story of the lovesickness of Prince Antiochus is actually representative of the significance of the pulse. Namely, it's representative of all the things that aren't subject to the will. It wasn't that long ago that qualitative categories of the pulse were the major diagnostic tools of physicians. The shift toward a quantitative focus on heart rate came with the wide availability of mechanical clocks in the 19th and early 20th centuries. But we'll get to more of that in the next episode. Uh, so as far as I know, Sir John Floyer, is, is it 1707 or seven, I think so, 1707 and 1710, um, wrote a book called The Physician's Pulse Watch, uh, which I think is the earliest of the works to tie up the pulse or tie the pulse together with uh, a, wa a watch, right? And to actually time the number of beats per second as a diagnostic method. Um, and what's interesting about that particular work is it's also the same work in which he talks about Chinese pulse diagnosis. Um, even though he doesn't relate the two directly, but, but he's, he's um, it's one of the earliest works in which he talks about, uh, in which Europeans are conscious of um, the Chinese traditional pulse taking. Uh, the encounter between Western medicine and Chinese medicine that the pulse was the thing that Europeans sort of saw as probably the most distinctive feature of Chinese medicine. And it was much more uh, prominent to them than uh, something like acupuncture, which really only becomes significant uh, a bit later. Uh, but even before early modern times, early travelers had noticed that the Chinese doctors were very good at taking the pulse uh, and that they were doing things that at least their contemporaries in, in Europe didn't seem to be doing, and they were much more skilled at doing this. And so the question was, you know, how were they able to do this? And this actually still remained a mystery for a long time. Why exactly did these European travelers find the pulse in Chinese medicine so strange? What exactly is pulse-taking in Chinese medicine? The Chinese term that is translated as pulse uh, is sometimes read more, sometimes it's sort of mai today. And it's really a combination of both what we might call the, the structure, which we might now call an artery, and the function, namely the flow that's found associated with that structure. And it's the combination of the two together which makes it somewhat difficult to translate because we think of the pulse as the movement of an artery. But the way in which Chinese doctors were taking this makes that definition of the pulse as the, artery, as the movement of the artery problematic. And in particular, one of the keys to the Chinese taking of the pulse was the idea that different places had different meanings. Um, so that where we would find just one artery, uh, Chinese doctors found three different or six different or 12 different sites. And that was the thing that most struck people right away. Listeners can find a useful schematic of what Professor Kuriyama is describing on our website. The, the most important work of classical Chinese medicine is, is a work called The Yellow Emperor's Classical Medicine. Um, and... You know, the, the date of its compilation is somewhere between the 2nd century B.C., 2nd century C., and probably more in the la latter end of that 
spectrum because we know from some two manuscripts from the second century BC that pulse diagnosis didn't seem to exist and in that period. So it seems to have formed in that in that period between the second century BC and second century C. But once it's established, then it becomes the by far the, the central diagnostic practice in Chinese medicine, the one that people rely on. And part of its appeal is the ability to to tell patients about the skill of the physician. Mm-hmm. So patients may talk about the symptoms they have. If the doctor can tell things about the patient without asking them, then they feel that the patient that the doctor really is an expert. Right? And this ability to prove to patients the skill of the physician, I think, is one of the things that made pulse is extremely attractive. The aspect of time in Chinese pulse diagnosis uh, that actually was never picked up on in the Western sort of translations or analyses of Chinese pulse diagnosis, but in fact was really the central feature of Chinese pulse diagnosis, was the idea of seasonality. Right. So what people were looking for, first and above all, was uh, the seasonal character of the pulse. And that was the most revealing feature of whether this was a healthy pulse or a sickly pulse. Uh, the idea is the body has a seasonal rhythm, and as long as that seasonal rhythm, as manifest in the pulse, matches the seasonal rhythm of the greater world, then you're basically okay. Uh, but if your body's out of sync, then that's when you know you have problems. So there's a winter pulse and a summer pulse. There's a winter pulse and a summer pulse, um, and you know you can feel it yourself. If you if you feel the pulse yourself, in winter you you wouldn't be able to tell right away because in a particular season you just think of it as your pulse. But if you feel it now, we're now in uh, February. It's still winter. Uh, you'll feel it's basically sunken, right? That it'll be hard to feel. Whereas when you feel it in summer, um, it'll be much easier to find. It'll be much higher up. And it's sort of like how things go into hibernation, uh, rivers freeze over um, in winter, and then in summer, the ice melts, the waters overflow, and you can feel it easily. Um, so that uh, the body has seasons just like you know, the nature, the world around us. Right. Uh, this is something I think teaching about any medical system that is not biomedicine um, is kind of sometimes hard to convey is that uh, it's okay for a young body to be different from an old body. It's okay for in just even these biometric things that we've come to standardize, that we've come to think of as having you know, a fixed range of good that is true at all times. I think for, for Greek medicine, um, understanding that someone's humoral temperament you know, would be really different in a very hot climate versus a very you know, cold or mountainous climate is kind of weird <laughs> for people now um, if they've never been, if they haven't uh, sort of been introduced to that earlier. If you think about it, I think um, the traditional view makes perfect sense, right? So that 
the human body is part of nature, and you look around us, and now the trees are barren, but in the summer, there are leaves everywhere, the flowers are blooming. Um, so you would expect the body to have its own seasonality. Um, but I think the contemporary view tends to neglect the seasons and think, well, the human body somehow has its own independent time. Um, and part of it is, is you know, I think, um, conditioned by the, the environment, the artificial environment that we live in, which is, insulates us in, in many ways. Um, but this idea of seasonality was fundamental not only to diagnosis, but also to something like exercise. In traditional Chinese you know, theories of exercise, the way you exercise and the kinds of exercise you do depends on you know, the month of the year, right? Because it's about orienting yourself properly to the propensities of a particular season rather than you know, working out in the gym where you, you train certain muscles or do certain things regardless of the time of the year. The body is a part of nature, connected to the seasons, and this affects aspects of its structure. Is the distinction between the volition and the involuntary that we encountered in Greek medicine relevant to the pulse in Chinese medicine? This is a pretty complicated question, but I think the main thing is the premise that everything is, is in flux, right? There, there's flow, most particularly there's seasonal flow, there's a possibility of action, but it's it's the way action I think is conceived um, is similar to I think steering a a ship in the ocean or on a river, right? So you're you're already in process, and you have the possibility of steering it in new directions, but it's not like you're you're starting from at rest and then moving to motion. Uh, you're carried along by the seeds in certain ways, but you have the way of uh, the possibility of adjusting. So in that context, I think the idea of muscular action, of action, is, is really a very peculiar notion, right? The idea that you can create something out of nothing, that your decisions are totally independent of anything, right? right. Uh, rather than something that's a modification of something that's already in course. I have a question about a really interesting point of comparison that you brought up in the book that I was hoping you could elaborate more on because I think it would really tie into this discussion of volition and control. That's Che Yoon, a PhD student in the history of science at Harvard, which is this notion that pulse taking is a source of anxiety in the West. Um, that it's constantly up for debate whether this is even useful and how can we trust the, the subjective touch. Whereas in traditional Chinese medicine, that is the virtue of, of this practice, is that kind of subjectivity. And, and um, so I was wondering if you could speak more on that because it seems like that's tied into this notion of volition and control. Sure. So I think one of the most distinctive differences, aside from, you know, the idea that in Chinese medicine you have to feel different places um, or they felt different qualities, is precisely the fact that Chinese doctors didn't seem concerned about the problem of communication. So in Western medicine, the, the whole enterprise of pulse diagnosis is perpetually cast, in doubt, cast into doubt by anxiety about um, whether what one person is feeling 
is the same as what another person is feeling. So when one person says, uh, a gazelling pulse, do I really understand what, what you mean? Um, and the essence of that anxiety is the idea that understanding is a kind of visualization. Um, and so the assumption is that the speaker has some kind of image in mind, that image is translated into words, and then the listener has to somehow reconstruct that <laughs> the image uh, in the mind of, of the uh, speaker in, 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 in you know, his or her own, her own mind, um, which, of course, is, is, is often very difficult. Um, whereas I think what happens in the Chinese uh, case is a very different idea of communication in general, uh, whereby the focus is not necessarily on understanding some kind of idea right in the mind of the speaker, but the act of, of speaking and listening is about more about the conveying of a certain experience. And so in the book, I talk about the uh, example from a Chinese philosopher named Mencius, where he talks about the idea of knowing words. Um, and when we talk, think about knowing words, we think about knowing, understanding the meaning of a word. Whereas when he talks about knowing words, he talks about knowing from the way the person is speaking that he's trying to show off or he's embarrassed or he's sad. And it's about the intent rather than the meaning. There's clearly something different here than the kind of one-to-one, -one, the visualization, the objectivity. That even the, that the word can be separated from the speaker and the listener. A story that Projit told was um, this one uh, Vedya who comes from this lineage and how he would be sitting with his father or his grandfather. This is the same Professor Projit Mukherjee of the University of Pennsylvania that you heard in episode one, and who you'll hear again at length in our next episode. Let's let him tell the story himself. Brahmananda Gupta is also practicing Vaidya, who is the son of one of the most elite Vaidya lineages of Bengal. And his grandfather had set up one of the first Ayurvedic colleges, etc. Brahmananda Gupta told me of how when he was a young boy and he was studying in college, his father would occasionally tell him, don't go to college today, come out with me. I have to go see a patient. And he would take him and make him feel the pulse of that patient. And his father wouldn't tell him anything. He would just say, remember the sensation. And then he'd come back and point out a certain section in a text and say, read this. And he'd say, whatever you sensed is different. I don't know what you sensed. My sensation and your sensation will be different. But this sensation correlates to this particular type of uh, affliction and this particular type of treatment. You have to memorize that sensation that you have had and which might be different from my sensation and connect it to this part of the text. And so kind of allowing for everyone's body to be a slightly different diagnostic tool, uh, but have enough shared that um, you can match it to the gazelle. <laughs> and it doesn't have to be uniform to be useful. In this episode, we have discussed Greek and Chinese medicine as two totally separate entities. 
and we have jumped from ancient Greek medicine to modern biomedicine. But Greece and China were connected throughout the two millennia in which pulse diagnosis was developed and practiced in both traditions. It is possible that the flux of pulse in Chinese medicine and the involuntariness of the pulse in Greek medicine came together elsewhere, perhaps in the many regions connecting Greece and China, and that these interactions shaped the way the pulse is understood in much of the world today. Tibet is usually thought of in relationship to India and in relationship to China. But when you look at a map of Central Asia, or Asia more generally, in the 8th or 9th century, you see the Tibetan Empire, you see India to the south of it, you see Tang, China to the east of it, and the Abbasid Empire is on the western, uh, western borders of Tibet. So it seems only logical that there would be interactions. That's Professor Ronit Yoli Tlalim, founder of a collaborative project on interactions between Tibet and the Islamic world. Her work focuses on the transmission of medical knowledge across medieval Eurasia. Check out the full episode on the Ottoman History Podcast for more on that, including Tibetan stories about Galen. Yeah, so in general, I think when we look at projects like this, it's um, a great way to look at transmissions when you have medical manuscripts that were found on the Silk Road. I have come to look at the Silk Road in a, in a larger sense. So we usually t- think of the Silk Road as the interactions between China and, and Greece. Um, but when um, uh, we look more closely at the kind of material that we find on the Silk Road, and um, the, we see that the, um, the interactions happened on a very small scale from um, station to station. And that brings closer to home the, the idea that we needn't look at, at the termini points, so not uh, China and Greece, but look at everything that's happening in between, and thereby um, the, the, the really important languages and cultures to look at these interactions are Arabic and Persian um, and Tibetan and Uyghur. Actually, we need to look at the in-between, the narrative that's been uh, dominant for, for too long, uh, which is that in terms of history of medicine and in terms of intellectual history more, more generally, that European knowledge uh, started with the Greeks and then um, kept um, by the by the Islamic world for a thousand years and then went back to, to Europe. Um, so th- this idea that, that the Islamic world kind of babysat the, the <laughs> knowledge for a thousand years um, and, and ignoring the huge uh, developments and, um, and really important input that is- the Islamic world has brought to European cultures. Uh, so it, it is really time that we abandon this narrative and this kind of work where we look at the cross-Eurasian transmissions and the the input coming from from all over shows that what developed in the Islamic world was was really a lot more than just Greek knowledge. 
Listeners, thank you for joining us for this episode of Ventricles. If you're interested in learning more, please check out the bibliography for this episode online at the Science, Religion, and Culture Program website, src.hds.harvard.edu. Tune in to the rest of our series about time, including episodes on canoes in space and more. A special thank you for this music to the Overseas Ensemble, a collaboration between composer Pai Lanka and Sarigama, a group of Sri Lankan musicians who came together while working in Beirut. Beirut.